Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to PickPod 77. Today, we're going to do a reprise of PickPod 56, which was all about oxygen saturations with Mark Peters. He uh, was leading the OxyPQ trial, uh, which has just published. So um, welcome, Mark. Please, could you introduce yourself and just tell us why we've got you back on? So I'm Mark Peters. I'm a paediatric intensivist at Great Ormond Street in London, an academic at UCL. And you've got me back on, I suspect, because we've just published the results of the OxyPQ um, multicenter randomised trial in the Lancet. Um, so that was um, back on the 1st of December. And for your regular listeners, remember, we discussed this a couple of years ago uh, when it was just setting up. But essentially, it is a comparison in intubated emergency admissions to paediatric intensive care who were receiving supplemental oxygen. It was a one-to-one randomization between an oxygen saturation target of 88 to 92 percent, that's the intervention group, compared to usual care, which is high oxygen saturations, and which we described as greater than 94 percent. And our outcome measure was of a combination of the days on organ support or death, um, which we can go in some more detail. Um, so that's just come out and there's been a little bit of a um, discussion about it. I'm sure we're going to go through it um, in the Indeed. rest of the discussion. Say, Mark, is this, this is absolutely wonderful. Uh, you know, it's a very difficult study, it's the sort of study one wished had been done a few years earlier. But you, and it's difficult, but you've achieved it. And I think it's congratulations are due to you and your team. Well, it's a huge team. I mean, you know, there were 15 um, centres that contributed to this. They all had to um, put in the effort of screening people rapidly after um, emergency admission or acceptance. Um, there's a clinical trials unit and there are funders, National Institute of um, Health and Care Research, the HTA, um, and the ICNARC clinical trials unit. So there's a lot of people involved, um, certainly not just my study. And yeah, it is difficult, but we are uniquely privileged in the NHS, I think, in having um, research relatively embedded in clinical care. I think um, the NHR is an extraordinary institution. We should be we should cherish it because it makes doing work like this feasible when I'm not sure it is in any other country. Absolutely agree. Here, here. I think it uh, needs to be preserved and nourished and cherished by all. I heard someone say that this is the largest ever PICU trial. Is that right, Mark? So... You have to add a couple of adjectives to make that true. So it's the largest individually patient randomised um, uh, controlled trial in paediatrics. So yeah. others, um, Sandwich and Restore, which cluster randomised, um, include more patients. But on an individual patient allocation, um, yeah, it's the biggest. Um, so we we, we randomised um, 2,040 patients, the majority of whom went through to the primary outcome measure. Which absolutely hammers the usual number of sort of three to five hundred which is a good trial isn't it you know we can get proper results from that amount of patients but this is when you're going up to consent available for 1872 patients that's remarkable yeah and i but i think you know it reflects the increasing confidence of the uk product intensive care community in doing these kind of trials you know yeah. we delivered sandwich which had 8800 although it's cluster randomized um, we've delivered this we're well through the pressure trial of blood pressure targets. We're racing along 
with the gastric PQ trial of um, routine measurement of gastric residual volume. I think we're at 750 as of um, yesterday. So, you know, these things can be done with the right network and the right engagement. And crucially, I think the question that people are interested in the answer for. I think that the UK is um, uniquely positioned in being small enough so that we're collegiate and lots of people know at least one person in every single unit and yet large enough to be able to have the patient numbers to do this kind of mega research. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th I mean, we've got 29 units. I think to date, 24 of them have actively participated in one of the um, network studies and, and uh, we have plans to nudge that up even further. So um, I think that combination means we can do things at a reasonable scale at a reasonable speed. Your inclusion criteria for this, for this study was what? So you had to be accepted um, to a participating unit um, as an emergency admission and on invasive mechanical ventilation and supplemental oxygen. Um, and then the time window for I mean, you, you had to be a child, obviously, you had to not be a premature infant and you had to not be an adult. Um, and you had a six hour time window from first being in face to face contact with a member of the receiving unit or the transport team um, uh, of six, six hours to uh, recruitment. And not to jump forward to the results, but very satisfyingly, the median time to recruitment from um, meeting criteria to randomization was, was two hours. So I think you know, that's a massive achievement in terms of particularly the transport services being able to um, achieve separation in oxygen saturation because had we not done it so early, the potential for seeing differences obviously greatly reduced because they've already been exposed to normal care for longer. Tell us how many patients were transported to an ICU and were included in the study? You know what? I don't have that number in front of me. I, I mean, um, at, at gosh, the vast majority of the emergency admissions would be external um, transports. I don't think we've divided it up by that. I could probably find it somewhere in the yeah, appendix. But it's, uh, it's quite an achievement, isn't it, to sort of bring in patients, get get them randomised, include them in the trial. You know, apart from the UK having the right size and the right funding support, the other key feature we have of uh, our research here is um, the governance and consent processes that permit us to, to start a randomization in emergency situation, start a um, uh, um, intervention following randomization um, in the absence of advanced consent. Um, so this so-called deferred consent or research without prior consent process. Um, and that, without that, this would not be feasible because to do a proper um, consent discussion um, takes time to communicate and to balance risks and benefits and discuss options. Um, clearly, if, if we had done that, we would not have been able to achieve the sort of time between um, meeting criteria and um, allocation to the uh, trial group. And therefore, the chance of the trial showing anything would be greatly reduced. Do you think the age band is too wide? You know, you have virtual neonates and then you have 16-year-olds who could be adults. Do you think you could have stratified them into different age bands? So great question. I mean, uh, so what's behind your question is one of these. There's, al there's always a have you done too pragmatic a trial or two or could you have made it more precise? And we absolutely tried to model the clinical uncertainty that pediatric intensivist 
is faced with. So you know, in our patients, whatever age they happen to be, um, what should our starting position in terms of oxygen saturation targets be? And so, so every time we come to that, could we characterize our patients better? The answer was, well, do we know the answer in any of our groups of patients or are, what's the population in which we're genuinely uncertain? I think the, the truth is the literature and our clinical practice reflect the fact that we're uncertain across this age range. Um, so that's why we did it. We appreciate every time you do that, you potentially worsen the signal to noise ratio um, and make it more difficult to see the answer. But if you do see an answer in a, such a mixed population, it's very likely to be robust. The other group of patients are, are the ones who are a predominant group in most, most ICUs now. These are the children with uh, significant neurodisability, etc. Did you look at them specifically or were they part of the, the whole group as such? So we did have some specific exclusion criteria um, and they were designed to capture the subgroups in which um, there's a strong prior belief that the risks and benefits of oxygen are different. So that's predominantly acute neurological injury. So when that was the main problem um, underlying this admission to the ICU, they were excluded. If they had um, a suspected or confirmed congenital cardiac disease, again, because of apparently it does something to blood flow, I never quite believe it, um, yes. uh, and, and um, sickle cell and children with um, uh, pulmonary hypertension. So that sort of you know cluster of cases for which oxygen is thought to have a different risk and benefit, we excluded. Well, just Mark, for the congenital cardiac, there's obviously a spectrum in that, isn't there? So, so don't mean an ASD, you mean a, a transposition? Yeah, I mean, again, from the pragmatic point of view, we gave guidance that known or suspected congenital cardiac disease. So whether someone considers an ASD a variant of normal up to a significant disease which will require surgery is obviously a complex um, judgment. But if if it was thought to be a major part of the pathology, then we encourage the investigators to exclude. What I was interested in again is the, uh, the total, how many of them were neonatal graduates? Again, they, they seem to be kind of a large number in most ICUs nowadays. Um, yeah, we d I mean, we don't have, in, in a pragmatic trial, we have broad diagnostic groups. We don't have very detailed clinical phenotyping, if you like, um, because the way we get 2,000 patients is by making it quite light touch in terms of the data collection. Um, we may have that, be able to get to that um, via Picanet linkage, but, you know, I would suspect it will be a significant proportion of the under twos that have had prior ICU exposure in, in um, neonatal practice, but um, I wouldn't like to guess at that number. Um, so how long, how long did this study take? So we had planned for 24 months of recruitment. We managed to do it in, we managed to recruit it in about 20, um, which considering we delayed the start because of the first lockdown um, and research services were under great pressure because of all that COVID stuff, um, it was great to do it ahead of time and target. So um, yeah, 20, that 20 never months. happens, does it? Well, it, it never happens happen. if you, so we were, we were deliberately very conservative in our inclusion, in our estimates of the number of patients. Um, and it's a good job we were um, because, you know, events happened and 
it gets in the way of us recruiting patients you know so i mean every study comes up against unexpected challenges changes in practice changes in referral processes um uh, a new vaccine there's always something that makes it so so it seems to me useful to be very conservative in your estimate of the number of patients available um despite the pandemic we were quite lucky then that our conservative estimates held and then um the whole study took um under two years and you had 2000 who are randomized and then most of those unconsented so you said that this is deferred consent isn't it yeah so, so the full the full sort of consort diagram shows that just over five and a half thousand met the inclusion criteria half of those were then excluded with brain pathology being the biggest reason um, and suspected or known um, uncorrected congenital cardiac disease being the second biggest um, and then a about 780 were actually eligible for the study but didn't make it through to randomization so that's that's not bad in that we got um uh, over 70 percent of the eligible patients included and that's always a sort of metric you need to think about in a trial because you want to be sure there's not a bias introduced by the study processes so so a high rate of um eligible to in, included patients do you know what happened to the 777 so the the reasons given are 134 was some clinical decision 463 missed because of of staff not available or unit busy and 180 other reason do you have the you know the broad outcomes for those seven so we're not allowed to collect the outcomes for the patients because no study, so, yeah. um, unfortunately so okay. no but uh, but i mean i think what we do know is that those that were included were representative of the picu emergency population in their age right. distribution in their geographic distribution in their ethnicity distribution in their case so in all the ways that we can test whether this is likely to be generalizable, the result we see is likely to be generalizable to the, to the real world it looks um, reassuring um, right. and and then 5.6 percent didn't consent now have you looked into why they didn't consent was that was that data gathered we we know some of that um and it's very similar to in the pilot study or in the other studies that are about one in 20 of the families are not comfortable with um, um participating in um research and just to be clear there's two different ways you can uh, not consent one is one is declining further exposure to the intervention which was more common and as, so that was about 50 50 to 60 in each group okay um and um, there's a subset who say actually no we'd rather we hadn't been in and you would rather you take all the data out you can't use anything up to this point um and that was 19 and 17 um in in the two groups so that's that's less common and so the group that say we want to come out of the intervention that's a mix of things um it all being too much to think about in the middle of the child being critically ill it's prior icu experience and have a, a parental view of what works better um, and all the other mismatch of things um, looked after children where it's difficult to determine who has um, uh, consent um, uh, a natural distrust of science in some people and um, you know a, a whole mix of 
reasons. But the but the rate is really remarkably consistent. It's about five percent of the total across this for fever, the oxy pilot. Um, I think pressure so far sees a similar sort of number. It's phenomenal, fantastic. Uh, the conversations must have been really very positive. Um, so I was I was having these conversations at the bedside. And actually, I think, you know, deferred consent can be controversial because we're not asking really for consent. We're asking for forgiveness more than permission sometimes. Um, ethicists have, um, have spent much time thinking about this. But fundamentally, we are we have done the intervention and then we ask for the ability to data share. There's no other way of doing this properly. OK, so I'm a big, a big supporter. But the conversations are different to a, a normal consent trial. So it does feel different. Yeah, and I think it's just worth reflecting on, on the preconditions for being allowed to use research without prior consent. And they are that both the options, or however many you're choosing between, are already in clinical practice. OK, so we had an intervention that is recommended in some of the policy guidelines of using um, lower oxygen saturations. Um, and we know that some some rare UK clinicians already followed that. Um, much more commonly, we were generously oxygenating our patients. So both of those are out there. There was already variation in care, but effectively it was random or individual based. And so what, what we're trying to do in a trial like this is to is to recognise that variation and systematise the variation so that we can learn from it. Um, and I think so this is not using some high risk novel drug for the benefit of big pharma. This is teaching a bunch of um, well-intentioned but um, uninformed intensivists between their clinical options. Um, and, uh, you know, it does help us. It gives it a, a little nudge as to what might be what might be preferable. Especially as we, we don't have the answers for it. So I think to, yeah. to search for the answers is probably a very sellable clinical trial, isn't it? Well, I think that's one of the points. So, so one of the reactions you, I'm sure Patrick experienced at the bedside is, how do you not know this? <laughs> you know, it's such a fundamental thing, you'd think. Um, how do you not know what um, what the best starting oxygen saturation target is? Mark, can I go back to the trial again? Because I just wonder how easy was it to maintain 88% saturations? Because clinically, you find that the minute you put a tube down uh, and you give them a, an hour or two of oxygen plus a bit of pressure, the oxygens go up, saturations usually go up to mid 90s. How do you maintain that? Great, great question. So this is this is the adherence thing. And there's a whole slab of work and lots of gra graphs to try and show how that worked. And the honest answer is that only a proportion of the patients um, in the intervention group were down actually within the target range. But the intervention was to aim for it, not necessarily to achieve it. OK, and so um, although only some were in the target range, a whole lot more were breathing 21 percent oxygen. OK, and were above the target range. And that's perhaps best illustrated um, if someone's going to look in the um, in the supplement. We've, we have a figure of what happened to the FiO2 with each hour in the first 24 hours. And you can see that both groups start with saturations above 97 percent and an FiO2 of about 55 percent. Um, and within and, and both fall in the first hour. OK, the the um, the, 
control group falls by a handful of percent, whereas the um, uh, intervention group falls much more. And you can see that the groups separate really dramatically. So we're down in 40% at one hour um, in the intervention group, and that separation persists. So the intervention was rather more reducing exposure to oxygen than it was necessarily hitting the target range. Does that make sense? Um, and then it's actually very difficult to measure adherence because if you're above the target range, but you are weaning, you're still following the intention, but you just have maybe undershot so far. And so there's lots of different ways of um, interpreting this. But actually, relatively poor adherence, of course, is a is a conservative issue. And what I mean by that is that um, if we had had perfect adherence, we'd, of course, expected greater physiological and potentially clinical differences between the groups. So the fact that people are people and things take a while and everything's noisy and physio comes along and turns the oxygen up or we go off to scan and they're in 100 percent oxygen for a bit. all those things that make it more difficult they tend to bring the two groups further together and so if we see a clinical benefit of low oxygen through all that noise it's even more likely it's real um, so mark i'm um, having looked through your paper plus i'm the supplementary i'm sure you spend hours trying to decide which figures to include in the main paper and which in supplementary. But you're talking about e-figure falls that's on page 25 of the of the supplementary. And it does tell a story there about the the very, very rapid um, separation. Um, but on the next page is on, on e-table 7, on page 26, there's your protocol adherence. And that shows how many um, protocol deviations you had, which isn't surprising because almost everybody went went above the the lower limits who was in the um, conservative. So 906 went above out of 939. I'm a big fan of asking for both the intention um, to treat and uh, per protocol analysis. I think you can learn different things from both. But here that's simply not feasible because to keep someone in the conservative oxygen range at all times is practically impossible, isn't it? It's certainly very difficult to keep them in the um, target range all the time. But I mean, you get, there's two responses to that. Either you say the intervention was the intention um, or you say, well, actually, um, you didn't quite achieve the target range um, and you could. And certainly the editorial attached to the, um, the main paper in The Lancet took this view is that not achieving the target range may be informed by clinician expertise and maybe that balance of the low target and a an experienced clinician who doesn't always hit the target is actually preventing harm from low oxygen i'm not sure i believe that um, but that's another way it, these data could be interpreted yeah um, that's presuming that we know more than the under studies which yeah, is so, uh, a dangerous yes. place to go so i always i was rather doubt that um uh, we know what we're doing to that extent I'm, i don't feel that i do um, yeah. but maybe i'm in the minority tell me did you you know there's always this question about ethnicity and uh, saturations uh, mm -hmm. correct for that in the in the Afro, african children of african origin so um yeah, the issue here is that there's a there's believed to be a tendency for darker skin to um, underread on the 
SpO2 compared to the SaO2. Um, we have done that analysis. It's not presented in the primary paper. Um, I'll talk about that when it's out. Um, uh, there's, there's, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's all it's all a little bit dependent on the device, um, and there's a lot of variability in there. Um, there is a little bit of a signal in the trial, um, but we'll see when we've formally done that um, subgroup analysis, which should be shortly. The one thing which would have kept me awake at night if I were you was the worry that you're going to do this massive trial and look at your graphs and there's no separation between the groups. Is that right? Well, separation or outcome. So when you do a study outcome, like this, But outcome is fine, because if there's no difference in outcome, yeah. then we should be doing the minimum which works. Yeah? yeah, I mean, I think we were reasonably confident we could achieve separation because we've done the pilot study of 120 patients. And it's very interesting that the, the 2000 patient study looks almost identical to the um, 120 patient study in terms of um, the achieved oxygen saturations and the required inspired oxygen fractions. Um, so I actually wasn't too worried about that. Um, I was worried, of course, that um, we might get an uninterpretable result or a result that showed harm or um, uh, I was less worried about no difference because that would have mean you know, we wouldn't needed to have um, uh, pushed oxygen up. Um, but I'm sure we're going to come on to the results any minute. Let's go there, Mark. Let us. Okay, so it just needs a little bit of setup. We're going to talk about the results because we approach this in a in a way um, that I think has lots to recommend it. And that is that we recorded because parents told us, parents and families told us that the, the duration of organ support was what they really cared about. And obviously they really care about if their child survives or not. The problem with using what has been quite widely used, ventilator-free days or similar, is that it makes no accommodation for death. And we genuinely believe that death is worse than still being on a ventilator at the end of the month. Um, if you go home on day 31, that's clearly um, uh, not equivalent to death. And so we combined both duration of support and survival into a ordinal scale. So the number of days of organ support from um, 1 to 30 um, and then a score of 31 being the worst score equating to death and as soon as you add that death on the end it means that the each of those numbers is not an equal separation because you haven't now got a nice ordinal scale you've got a series of ranks of outcomes you can't say death is one day worse than being alive okay and so you have to look at the ranking you can't look at the sort of um the numerical distribution in quite the same way primary outcome is a thing called a probabilistic index which means if you take a randomly selected pair of patients one from each group what's the probability that the intervention group has the better outcome um, so that's what we did we present the probabilistic index of a better outcome um, in the intervention group compared to the control group. And the answer is that 53% um, of those pairs, the better outcome would be in the intervention group. And that's statistically significant, just at 0 0.04 level. And that in itself, people have found a little bit difficult to understand um, because the distribution is quite complex. Okay, so all of these rankings the median is the same. The median length of stay on on organ support on the ICU is five days in both groups. But um, in the figure, 
um, I think this is 3B in the main paper, you can see that distribution has changed, but it's changed in a, in a sort of asymmetric way across the rank. So there are more kids who spend less time on the ICU in the short numbers. So as days sort of um, 0, 1, 2 um, are more commonly seen in the um, conservative group. And similarly, at the other end of the distribution, death and very long stay are less frequent in the conservative group. But in the middle, the groups look rather similar. And so if you're trying to describe this distribution with a median, you'll miss the point that it's changed quite a bit and it's changed significantly. Um, and if that sounds a little bit like stats, smoke and mirrors, you'd just be reassured that however you look at these data, you get the same answer. OK, if you if you use odds ratios for the distribution of um, the same outcome, so you then get a, a nice survival curve and you cut it in very um, different places, you get a 16% reduction in the odds of persistent organ failure or death. Um, and again, the same significance figure. And the advantage of doing it that way is you can adjust for all the covariates, the age and the, the baseline severity um, of gas exchange or the PIM score and so on. OK, so it's so the result is positive. It's in favour of conservative oxygenation. It's a small effect and it is at a threshold of statistical significance. Um, and so that means that all those design decisions we made about the size of the trial, we're glad we were quite conservative about our um, sample size. We made no assumptions about mortality um, and uh, we made a small assumption about duration of um, uh, organ failure. They turned out um, to be ballpark about right. But I'm glad we didn't try and do a 1500 patient study. Otherwise, we'd have um, incorrectly concluded no effect. So Mark, it is utterly intuitive that if you move the goalposts, you'll have to give less. Um, so if you say I'm going to aim at lower levels of ventilation, then you have to give it for a shorter time. However, the, the worry I think we, we all had when we started on this was well, what's the knock-on effect? Yeah, is this a free lunch, or is there is there a problem? Are we going to have increased death? Are we going to have increased organ failure of other organs um, because we just have less DO2 around? So we're going to have less oxygen within the tissues in a child under stress, and that feels intuitively to be a bad thing, and it is a bad thing because if we were to aim for saturations of 50% then that is almost certainly going to be bad, isn't it? Now, somewhere between 50% yeah. and 100% is going to be this, this sweet spot. Gratifyingly, you found no change in mortality and no change in, in the organ outcomes. And in fact, numerically, the organ damage was in fact slightly higher with the liberal oxygen group. Yeah, so the mortality, I mean... It was never powered for mortality on its own, but the 30-day mortality, there is a trend, odds ratio 0.8, in favour of the conservative group. So, it, so all the components of the primary outcome go in the same direction. There's um, a shorter duration of organ failure. There's a, um, a lower um, uh, observed mortality, and the combination is significant. I think you, every time you combine an um, outcome measure, there's a you know when you when uh, a combination like this you thinking of the neonatal trials when they combined retinopathy and death um, their outcomes confounded by the retinopathy improving with a low 
oxygen saturations, but death being worse. And so um, it's gratifying that we haven't seen that. Um, so I'm reassured by that. Um, I think your other point about is this. So your, your question about moving the goalposts needing you um, means you can give less treatment. So that's a mechanistic question about about how might this have worked? OK, I think this is really interesting. And the, the truth is, we don't know. But I would just point out that with the pilot study, we did do some biomarker work. And we could show some altered redox status um, in the two groups early on. Um, and we could show some hypoxia gene response in the low group early on. And so um, there is a biological sort of intermediate um, processes that are triggered that could mean there's a biological reason behind it. It's not just that we're preventing humans from doing unnecessary things to patients um, because we're um, uh, reminding them their patients are probably safe around this level. Although I think that's still a part. And remember what I just said about the distribution of the organ failure changing. So it changes at the bottom end in the well in the patients who are only going to stay a short time. And it changes at the top end in the really sickest patients who are dying or along. So I suspect there were different mechanisms in play in those two groups. I think if this if a short stay intrabronchiolitis or relatively mild single system respiratory failure, I'm sure having a uh, more relaxed target means you can just move the patient through um, a bit quicker. You can sedate them a bit less. Um, you can extract them a bit sooner. Um, you know that makes perfect sense to me. But I think it's more difficult to understand that in the patient who's there for four weeks um, or longer on the ICU. Uh, and then perhaps you know, they're already in a state of significant systemic inflammation. Um, they are struggling to recover damaged organs. And so maybe then the oxidative status change um, is a biological impact. This is all speculation, of course, but, you know, just that distribution would be would be consistent with there being two different mechanisms in play yeah. in the two different lengths of stay. Uh, but even your even your lactate levels or the or the rates of high lactate confusingly were higher in the conservative group. Yeah. So just a little. So this is the safety data. OK, so there were, there were some pre-specified adverse um, events that we wanted reported that were things we thought low oxygen delivery might worsen. So cardiac ischemia, new renal failure, new seizures, all without other explanation, um, severe um, raised lactate. They were all more reported more frequently in the um, liberal group than in the conservative group. I mean, that's reassuring. But just the caveat, of course, in an open label study, people may report um, asymmetrically in the two arms um, because they're because they're reporting stuff that's against their expectation. Um, so I think it's reassuring, but I, w I don't think we can we can say suddenly revise the whole metabolic pathway by saying, well, clearly oxygen causes high lactate um, on the basis of uh, of those observations. Well, can I just go back to the, the Gareth Jones's paper, the one yeah. from your team? Have you been had you been collecting samples all along? So do you would you be presenting data on a thousand plus patients? Or I wish, uh, sadly, um, HTA funded it funds us for the trial, but not for biomarker analysis. And um, remember, we started about the scale of the study. 
the scale comes with simplicity um, to be able to deliver it. Uh, I would love to have done um, serial biomarkers and be able to tell you a mechanism. We don't have that. Um, but the numbers are quite small, aren't they? 30 plus uh, in each group. So I just wonder whether those, those need to be at some point repeated, perhaps. I think it would be great. I think, you know, hopefully the result we have here may make some of that funding um, easier to access. Um, you probably know we're planning, to, we're hoping to do a, a platform trial with lots of simultaneous investigations um, with the UK PICS community. Um, and we are trying to weigh up whether we could do biomarker um, collection in parallel with that. Do you think this could become a prescriptive uh, way of managing patients in the ICU? Is this something that you have a child being admitted and you sort of say, well, we hope to try and maintain saturations around 88 to 92? Or is this something that will evolve with time, need a bit more time, do you think? So, I mean, I have some skin in the game here. I think if we, we now have one data point um, and that data point is in favour of 88 to 92 or the intention to target 88 to 92. I mean, I think we should follow it. I think prior to this study, we had a physiological basis for um, preferring oxygen delivery, but a concern about oxidative injury that was unquantified. We've now have one data point that suggests that the risks and benefits of 88 to 92 um, are preferable to greater than 94. So I think that should be your starting point. Um, now, I'm sure it would be fantastic if someone in, in another system um, did 88 to 92 versus 93 to 96 or something similar. Um, it'll be, you'd have to power the study quite, quite extensively because it's likely that the, um, uh, the effect size would be smaller. Uh, and maybe we'll come back to that in the platform if we get it established. But I think at the moment, you've got to have a bloody good reason to not follow the evidence. And the evidence that does exist says 88 to 92 is preferable. And, but Mark, it's not one data point. It's 2,000 data points. Well, fair enough. Okay. Um, the so, so this yeah. is this isn't this isn't just someone in their, in, in their unit just looking at a couple of patients. This is a extremely high quality national multicenter trial. I'm glad you said that, but I still, I mean, I, I still think, you know, no trial's perfect. Um, there will be, you know, we, we can't quantify the extent to which the operators managed what they perceived as the risk, high or low, um, which could modulate. So, you know, the only way to have got rid of that would have been to have a blinded study. Um, and and there are other things we could, we could do that would potentially improve the um, our understanding of the risks and benefits of low um, oxygen targets, which would be a sort of closed loop um, circuit between the inspired oxygen fraction and the and the peripheral oxygen saturation. Um, so there's a, there's a whole bunch of things we could do to understand this relationship more closely. I, it will be my starting point, um, but I, I don't think anything, uh, any single study um, is the last word on the subject. And it definitely needs to be replicated in another setting. Well, a couple of things. One, I think in resourceful countries where oxygen is premium, this would be, at least for the parents out there in Ambia or whatever it is, telling them that, look, we haven't got oxygen, but we know that maintaining saturations around 88 doesn't seem to be harming your little one. I think that's a very good statement. Great. Well, and I think that's 
that's consistent with the Coast study, which was Kath Maitland's group um, from East Africa. Um, although they suffered a, all sorts of problems in delivering the study with um, uh, political resistance and so on, they still got a point estimate in favour of less aggressive oxygen um, supplementation in, in 1800 kids with pneumonia. Um, so I, I think the few studies that exist are all in favour of less aggressive oxygen um, supplementation. Are you planning to go to Peru or Tibet to... Well, you, probably, you may remember this all started back in 2013 in a trip to Everest um, with a, a group of um, children as part of the Extreme Everest 2 study, which is a much wider project run by UCL and Southampton, um, looking at um, uh, adaptation to hyperbaric hypoxia. Um, so I don't feel an urgent need to go back to do that. Um, uh, I think I think the the mechanisms that are in play. I mean, there are some that are shared clearly, um, but I think that you know, you're, when you're talking about altitude, you're talking about sort of subacute exposure to to um, hyperbaric hypoxia rather than a, an acute change in the context of a, um, critical illness. But I think what would be really cool would be if we could do some phenotyping either from vital sign distributions or from biomarker work that could sort of enrich the populations to know who would gain most from um, a conservative oxygen strategy um, and who for whom it may not be such a good fit. Um, so that's that's part of the work we're doing with the existing data set is to try and understand whether there's a, a real heterogeneity across these results um, or is it a, a sort of a class effect that everybody's just a little bit better off. There's always more research you can do and your study doesn't tell us that lower saturations are better. It tells us aiming for lower saturations is better. So that doesn't mean that if we now all ensure that there are lower saturations, that things are going to improve necessarily. It's not it's not quite the same thing. This is intention to treat rather than um, per protocol. Yeah, so we're using the oxygen saturation target as a lever to reduce exposure to supplemental oxygen and we've shown that that's beneficial you're right it's a subtly different question to say if you're if you rigidly enforce 88 to 92 um would you see a different result i think they're not all that different unless you're talking about using um you know hyperbaric hypo hypoxic gas mixes which i don't think we are so i mean i, I think that's more a theoretical um, limitation of the study than a um, real world one but uh, yeah so some of the some of the secondary analysis we're going to do is by adherence so if you were tightly adherent to the intervention did you get more less or the same benefit than if you were um, poorly adherent to the intervention and so maybe we'll get some hints in that direction to try and pick those things apart. And the next question Mark is how do you actually do this now when it's not part of your trial when there aren't the people watching on the bedside saying, no, we need to do this, we need to do this. I did a very tiny study, which, which ended up as a poster of a conference, where we, every day on the ward round, we looked at the uh, monitor alarm limits, and we set the upper limits to 98%. This was in the old days. Yeah. Um, and then the next day, we would go back to the same patients at the same time of day on the ward round and note down what the limit um, had been set to. And on 
almost all occasions, the upper limit had been set to either 100% or off because it's so annoying having this yeah. silly monitor beeping at you. And aiming at, at 88 to 94%, that will mean a lot more noise on the unit, a lot more beeping, a lot more irritation. So how do we get that to be actually done on the units that we can... Implementation science is another whole um, topic. Um, so, I, I mean, the way you do it is by making the case um, and seeing how this study lands now it's been published. Um, and what we would hope is it becomes part of the shared knowledge of PICQ. It's, a, it's adopted into major guidelines. Um, and then the way we would do it on our unit is that we would set it in a daily goal as part of the, the sort of ward round checklist. Um, do, how do we operationalize that at the bedside? That could include upper alarm limits, but I take your point that they are problematic. Um, my preference would be to engineer it in with, with a ventilator that has a, a closed loop between the FiO2 and the um, peripheral oxygen saturation. I think your chance of achieving it without um, creating extra work for the bedside nurse uh, will be much better. Um, but we have resisted pushing too hard about implementation until this was published so that we could actually see how it how it lands. But that's going to be our approach, I believe, is board our checklist and um, and where we can close loop. Um, and what kind of feedback have you had so far? I've had very positive feedback. I mean, uh, we were lucky enough to present it at a meeting called Critical Care Reviews in Belfast in the summer, um, which is a minority adult unit adult um, meeting um, and um, that was very positive and I've had a few people skeptical about the distribution of the primary outcome and the points we made about the the ranking because it is slightly unusual. Um, majority of people are delighted that there's a there is another fact in the PICU world that we can um, use to help us uh, refine our care. The effect size is smaller, isn't it? You know, the the p-value is 0.04, but also the time saving is 3.6 hours, which for the individual, that's not huge. But as a population, suddenly that becomes very... Sure, that 3.6 hours is ventilation only. It's slightly larger if you look across all the organ failures. But I mean, right. yeah, so that's um, the point estimate mortality, as I said, 0.8 is the answer ratio. So um, they are small effects. But given the fact that at least 12,000 patients in the UK are exposed to this treatment annually, it doesn't need to be a big effect to have quite a sizable impact um, on our resources and outcomes. And globally, of course, you can times that by another 100 comfortably. Tell me, how come it's not been similarly reported in adult studies? OK, so it's a great question. So um, there have been lots of attempts to measure this in adult studies. Um, the case mix is different. The comorbidities are different, the length of stay is different, the redox state in adults is different. And I think perhaps crucially, all the adult studies to date have focused on mortality. And we focused on the combination of organ support and mortality. One of the things that I would love to happen to this is someone to go back and reanalyze the existing adult data using the same outcome measure that we've used. I think that would be very interesting. Um, and then, of course, there are two very large adult studies which will, will be a much bigger impact potentially. There's something called Mega Rocks, which is recruiting 40,000 adults led by Australia and New Zealand. And there's something called UK Rocks, which is past 10,000 
UK adult critically ill patients on the way to 16,000. Um, and so those should be reporting in the next couple of years. And it could be that all of the limitations um, of the studies so far that have not shown an effect may be dealt with just by the sort of brute force of those numbers um, with mortality as the outcome measure. But, but given what we said about mechanisms, I, I still think you may need to include length of stay to see um, or length of organ support to see an outcome benefit. Um, fantastic work, Mark. Um, thank you very much. And thank you, obviously, to all of UK PICU. Um, we had a consultant meeting earlier on and we were talking about when to implement this. And the answer was, well, let's start tomorrow. So, fantastic. Um, I'm really because, pleased to hear that. Well, you know, and why not? You know, yeah, it's, why not? It's I should have said for implementation, part of the reason I think implementation um, has a really good chance is that most of the UK was part of this. Um, so we all yes, did it together. Yes. So we should we should apply it together also. Yes. And importantly, it, it, we, we haven't shown the things we're worried about. And even if there were no effect, if there's no bad effect, then we give the minimum which works and and uh, that's all good. Okay. So thank you, Mark. Um, what's Great. next for you? Um, what other burning question of PICU are you going to definitively answer next? Well, we've just put the grant in for um, something we've called Pivotal, Pediatric Intensive Care Platform Trial. Um, Bayesian Adaptive comes in there and somehow you get those letters. I can't quite remember how. Um, and the idea is to um, run multiple simultaneous trials in a similar population, so um, intubated patients on the ICU and we're going to look at a, a sedation domain, we're going to look at a, um, a more restrictive maintenance fluid um, domain with active fluid removal compared to usual care and we're going to look at um, transfusion thresholds um, with a broader inclusion than the existing TRIPIQ study including hemodynamic instability. Um, and the intention is though that at least at least two of those will include cardiac patients who've previously um, not been part of some of the larger trials. And the hope is we will be able to do something in the order of 10,000 patients um, over four years and potentially answer um, questions that have not been achievable beforehand. So, so we're trying to sort of formalise the structure that we had to build ad hoc for each of the, these current trials and use it going forward. And so hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be like our oncology colleagues that we're learning from every patient that comes um, through our unit. Well, that's, that's what Patrick that's you and I talked about. Do you remember we, we talked about the fact that I think every child coming to an ICU should be included in one of the studies, as oncologists do, because that's the only way of moving forward. Um, thank you, Mark. I'm just, just going to leave you with the the uh, XKCD webcomics, the number 2268. Is, um, the, the tagline is, uh, just once I want to see a research paper with the guts to end this way. And then the text that says, um, we believe this resolves all remaining questions on this topic. No further research is needed. So go, Mark. <laughs> Not there's, quite. <laughs> there's no, a thank mic drop. You. <laughs> Thanks very much. Cheers. Until next time. Thank Bye. you, Mark. That was wonderful. Thanks. Congratulations again. Cheers. Bye.